is Tuesday, October 1st, and we're here at EconView's library and podcast studio in Chicago. Our guest is a longtime friend and expert contributor to EconView, David W. Johnson. He's CEO of Foresight Health and author of a new book, The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, just published by McGraw-Hill. Dave, welcome to the Hale Report. Hale, lyric. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I guess I, I should have thought of that. <laughs> Well, we're very happy to have you here yeah, today. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. And uh, I did uh, read your book, and I have some questions that are both about the book, about you, and about healthcare in general. So, um, you know, you, one thing that I think is maybe interesting, especially for our listeners, is that you did not start out as a public policy wonk. You started out as an investor in healthcare. And I know you went to Harvard to study pu- public policy. How did that change in your career happen? Well, it's even more twisted than that. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a walking contradiction. I actually started um, as an English literature major in college, um, went into the Peace Corps as a language arts volunteer, so basically an English teacher in Liberia, West Africa, lived through a coup, had a wonderful time overall, thought I wanted a career in international development. That's what brought me back to Harvard uh, Kennedy School to study public policy to marry the uh, practical experience I had with with real managerial right. skills, analytic skills, and I had no idea what I was getting into because I hadn't had a math class since high school. Now it was calculus, and suddenly I'm doing microeconomics with calculus, statistics, econometrics, analytic modeling. Um, turned out I liked all that stuff, and after a short tour in government as a um, presidential management intern. I ended up as a healthcare investment banker and nobody would have been more surprised than my own 25-year-old self. Um, What I find potentially interesting about that background is each of those prisms, literature, culture from Peace Corps, uh, public policy and markets give me a prism through which to view healthcare, a very complex, nuanced industry, and by virtue of having these different foci, is that the right way to say focus in plural? Foci. Close uh, enough. <laughs> close enough. Um, maybe I get to see some things that other, others don't. Plus it's fun, right? I'll be writing something about regulatory change and next thing you know, you got a quote from Shakespeare in there. So, so you're the quintessential right brain, left brain kind of guy. I am, I, or at least I aspire. <laughs> as long to, as we're talking about biology. At least I aspire to be. Oh, you know, the other thing I really loved in your book that I felt um, must have been inspirational to you was the dedication of the Mm. book to both your mother and your mother-in-law. Right. It seems to me that they inspired you to, they led a life of public service as teachers. Mm -hmm. And is that the reason that that was included is to, um, to uh, include that motivation for you? Well, in my first book, Market Versus Medicine, I had three very close friends die, and I dedicated the book to Terry, my wife, but I also made it in memory of these three friends, and as luck would have it, um, or bad luck would have it, in this, when I was writing this book, three other very close people to me died, my mother, my mother-in-law, Mary, my mother, Barbara, and then a very good friend, Gordon McLeod, um, from Kennedy School. And I don't know if there's supposed to be (laughs) a strange symmetry in that or not, but 
Uh, I, I was going to dedicate the book to both Mary and Barbara, and then Gordon died just as I was finishing the writing, so I ended up with, with three uh, in, in memories of. But I would say, um, you know, first with my own mother, um, who grew up most of her life or most of her early life in the middle of an Indian reservation in Northwest Minnesota, uh, that she always had a penchant for education and the underserved. Um, and that carried through in her work as a teacher uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, eventually, uh, as an English language arts, English as a second language teacher. Uh, and what I always, um, uh, when I think back about her, what I always, she was just a, an incredible reader, intellectually curious. And I think she passed that on to me and to my brothers and sisters as well. Um, Mary, uh, who came, uh, was part of the package with my, <laughs> my with Terry, <laughs> with Terry uh, is the kind of woman, uh, was the kind of woman that really makes small town America hum. Uh, uh, they lived in a town called Cascade, Iowa, which has one stoplight and they only got that about 10 years ago. Uh, but she was on multiple committees, raised money for institutions, uh, sold insurance to most of the businesses in town at a time when most women weren't in business. And uh, she paid a little bit of a price for that. But overall, she was really good at what she did and uh, pretty hard to uh, <laughs> to hold down. So she, she had a very good career that way. Uh, and then was uh, exceptionally involved in pretty much all aspects of the town. And uh, those types of people are what make small America work, rural America work, small town America work. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I, I'd like to recognize that because in healthcare, healthcare affects everybody, big cities, small cities, urban neighborhoods, rural neighborhoods, um, so on and so forth. So I, I, I think that perspective definitely is an important one. I think it sets a, a beautiful personal tone for the oh, book. Thank you. And also it, um, you know, you're talking about a very thorny topic, a life and death topic as well for right. many people. Almost everybody has a health care horror story to pass along, but there is also hope in your book and yeah. this feeling that we can overcome these things if, we, if we're smart enough. Yeah, I, I've got some really tough language in the book, right? I right. Mean, Healthcare industrial complex, cronyism, um, monopsony, monopoly powers, so on and so forth. Uh, but I'm really glad you picked up on the hope too, because my belief is if we can get the economic incentives right and uh, focus on better care outcomes, uh, better customer service, better value, and unleash the American innovation machine on this you know, wildly out of control industry, and we can, we can get into that. Um, we can be not only as good as Canada, which is what Bernie Sanders hopes will be, you know, just like Canada. Uh, we can be better than Canada, and we should be better than Canada. Um, I think the right combination of a bottom-up market-driven system with appropriate regulation uh, will be unlike anything else the world has seen, uh, and we can do it here. Well, speaking of doing it here, another really wonderful aspect of your book um, is that you interlace um, history of the American Revolution. So you're talking about a future revolution, an ongoing revolution, but you also link it to one that we successfully went through 
And are you a history buff as well? <laughs> That's what well, I was I, an English major, but I have read a lot of history. Uh, it was um, very obvious <laughs> reading the book. <laughs> yeah, I I think many people have thrown up their hands at healthcare. Um, even highly skilled and educated um, economists, policymakers, and so on. Uh, and it's uh, we've created a, a, a system that now consumes almost 20% of the economy um, and I believe is an increasing burden on the average working person. Um, Zeke Emanuel and I published uh, or published uh, this ratio called the affordability ratio, which looks at the relationship between the cost of a family health insurance policy and median household income. And uh, that cost of a family health insurance policy published by the Kaiser Foundation just came out last week and first time ever it's over $20,000. Median household income is um, 63, 64,000. So Huge that, chunk. It's bigger than pe- a lot yeah. of people's mortgages. Right. So we're we're uh, at a place where that ratio is at 31.5%. Um, 20 years ago, which is the first year Kaiser Family Foundation published the uh, uh, the rate, the the cost of an insurance policy that ratio was at fourteen percent, so it's more than doubled in um, twenty years. And if you go back as far in economic history as you can in the United States, you will see that productivity and wages increased in lockstep, which makes sense, right? People are more productive; you should pay them more money. And that was true until the year two thousand. Um, and in 2000, productivity continued to increase and median household income has basically flatlined. And if you want to know why people are angry in this country, Tea Party, Occupy, Trump, Sanders, it's that one statistic. People are working harder than they've ever worked before uh, and they're, they're getting less for it. Now, many reasons for that. Two recessions, um, obviously the globalizing workforce, but an underappreciated fact is is the increasing financial burden that that healthcare places on the average worker. So, um, if we had been able to keep healthcare at that ratio, the affordability ratio at fourteen percent, that would be an extra ten thousand dollars, all other things being equal, in workers' pockets, and that would put it's our huge. that would put our wages back in line with productivity. Um, so. This overinvestment in healthcare, and in particular acute and specialty care, is stealing resources from other parts of of society, other more productive parts of society. And if we could figure out how to provide the same or better healthcare for less money, we would free up resources to pay people more money to invest in more productive industries. And so, I'm getting back now to your revolution <laughs> point and, and, and history. And so we have uh, a, a, a tyranny of our own making um, mm-hmm. on our hands that I think many uh, really don't know how to, how to address. And I believe that in our heart, Americans are, are revolutionary people and we need to recapture some of that spirit. So um, the first section of the book, which is why we need a revolution, ends with a declaration of independence, which chronicles the reasons why that has to happen. Um, It relies heavily on George Washington and this group of extraordinary yet very ordinary people that uh, fought and quibbled and and, uh, didn't always like each other, 
but somehow organized around the idea of, of democratic government and so on. Um, and we've created a nation unlike any other. Um, I also take inspiration from others, though. Uh, I'm a believer that we're a rich country and we should have um, health insurance for everyone in the country. Uh, we spend 18% of our economy on health care. The next big country, the next highest percentage is France at 12%. And I've not yet met one person who said uh, that we need to spend more than 18% of the economy to give great health care to everybody in the country. So it's not really a funding issue. It's a distribution issue. Uh, and I also believe we need to emancipate health care in the same way Lincoln emancipated the North effort to win the Civil War by emancipating the slaves. So we were fighting the first three years uh, to keep the Union together. Um, Lincoln, on January 1, 1863, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and that gave moral imperative to the North's war effort, and I believe turbocharges to victory. Uh, the equivalent battle in, in health care is... Um, uh, or, is, or we've been focused on value. How do we get more value and right. a huge amount of effort into that mixed success? Uh, but I believe adding the moral imperative universal health insurance will be what we need to do to provide health care to everyone in the country. No one should go to sleep worrying they're going to go bankrupt because of a medical bill and then in turn force the system back on itself to deliver what the American people really need, which is right care, right time, right place, right time. And, uh, you know, there are a bunch of other um, uh, historical references in there, and I hope you ask me about Eisenhower, a, a very underappreciated president. But the last one I'll mention here, because I've been talking way too long and to one question, to answer one question, is Martin Luther King in his letter from the Birmingham jail uh, made that very eloquent point that uh, justice too long de delayed is justice denied. So the time for universal health insurance is now. So the time is now. Time is now. So the healthcare picture in the United States is very mixed, right? When we talk about the healthcare industry, most people think right away of big pharma mm -hmm. uh, and insurance companies. But really what your book is about is what's closest at hand to people. It's it's about the point of care. Mostly it's about hospitals. And is that where the costs are? Is that where the issue is that you see? Because um, our big pharma companies and the research they do, they're leaders in the world. And if you have yeah. a rare disease, you, you know, American healthcare is the place to go. But for the average person, where they touch the healthcare system is in the emergency room. And, and you talk about somebody's yeah. journey there. Well, <laughs> everything in healthcare is big, right? Insurance is big. Um, right. Providers, hospitals, doctors are big. Pharma is obviously big. Right. Um, device manufacturers, big. <laughs> Intermediaries, big. Uh, I, in many respects, um, kind of believe it's a pox on all their houses, to tell you the truth. Okay. <laughs> it's not that good things haven't emerged. It's just our economic system is such that uh, companies optimize to uh, the payment formularies in multiple places and in multiple ways, uh, not to creating value. And I'll come back to that in a second. Um, and then 
we have lax uh, regulation and, and government capture influence peddling in a big way. If you look at the top 10 um, categories of contributor or lobby, contributors to lobbying, uh, for in healthcare and pharma tops the list. They're almost double the next next highest. What that tells me is healthcare writ large gets a bigger return in the halls of the U.S. Congress and each of the state legislatures than it gets uh, out in the marketplace. But let me come back to uh, the economics a bit just to give your listeners, our listeners, a, a sense of what I'm talking about. So when um, LBJ pushed uh, Medicare and Medicaid into being in 1965, he agreed to a couple of concessions to the American Medical Association that in retrospect have been absolutely uh, horrific. The first was something called cost plus reimbursement. So basically, um, whenever a physician prescribed something, the government had to pay for it plus a little bit of a margin. So any reasonable treatment, um, the... uh, the government had to pay for it. And the second, which is not as well understood, is um, there can be no governmental interference in medical decision-making. So uh, the government cannot, like it does in other countries, come in and define a a formulary or a set of protocols or or so on. Uh, So basically our model has said, as long as a doctor finds it reasonable um, the government has to pay for it, and then by extension, commercial insurers. And, you know, if you pay people to do more stuff, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, you get more stuff. And it wasn't as though this wasn't understood in 1965. There was an economist at UCLA, Milton Romer, mm-hmm. who, um, who said something uh, to the effect of, uh, in the event of third-party reimbursement, Supply creates its own demand, so supply-driven demand. And today, if you want to predict the number of cardiac procedures in a given market, you would think you'd look at things like demographics, environmental conditions, um, lifestyle choices, any number of things that correlate with, uh, uh, with cardiac disease. But the actual number one predictor of cardiac treatments in the United States is the number of cardiologists in a market. Supply-driven demand, literally create their own demand. Mm. Or is that, just to push back on that a, a yeah. little bit with you know correlation and causation and so forth, are those surgeons there because there's more need there? Or is there more... No, or do you, how do we, no, how do this, we this, untangle that? Well, this has been uh, studied um, ad nauseum, probably led by the Dartmouth Institute. And, um, and it turns out that there are huge variations in care across the country. Uh, for example, in, in uh, Medicare, uh, the cost per capita in Miami is almost twice as much as is Seattle, even though Seattle has a higher cost of living. And the difference is entirely attributable or almost entirely attributable to physician preference. Um, So they have been able to isolate by condition that some physicians are more aggressive, more treatments, uh, more days in the hospital, more, more, more. And again, it kind of comes back to... It's kind of a sociology of it then in in that local area. Oh, yeah. Where all the doctors seem to feel that they're going to do the same thing. That's interesting. To the doctor, uh, they will believe they are practicing 
great medicine. Of course. <laughs> and and um, there's a great story out of Utah. Um, Brent James, who was on the cover of New York Times Magazine, is one of the pioneers in evidence-based medicine. And one of the things um, he noticed was huge variations in gestation period for pregnant women. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you were looking at it randomly, um, or not randomly, but if you were looking at births, you would expect there to be a relatively even distribution uh, on days of the week, right? Right. 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 Well, turns out not very many babies born on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, so we were doing induced labor um, disproportionately uh, to fit either the mother's schedule or the doctor's schedule or, or whatever. Um, but what Brent James figured out was that mothers who carried a term, 39 weeks, uh, have many fewer problems. And they instituted over 10 years ago that every baby born in the Intermountain Health System in Utah would carry the term for 39 weeks unless um, a physician, obstetrician, specifically had a reason and cataloged that reason. And as they went around and showed these physicians that they were off pattern, that they were delivering babies after 34, 35, 36 weeks, and therefore had more, um, more medical issues arise, um, they were all aghast, and, uh, but eventually came around and the system held them accountable. And what that did was um, almost put Intermountain's uh, neonatal intensive care unit out of business. The very fact that mothers carried the term virtually eliminated the need to have the neonatal intensive care unit. Um, All my kids were born on the weekend, but that's because I was working. <laughs> <laughs> so you induced on I, Saturday. Yeah, I didn't Way induce. To go. I just Way was organized. <laughs> <laughs> and I was back at work two weeks later. I had a, I had a, I had a <laughs> boss once at Merrill Lynch who had uh, three kids, and they were all born in November because... Uh, and I don't know how she managed to pull this off <laughs> because, you know, the year was basically done, bonuses pay out in January. So that gave her six weeks to kind of have the baby and, <laughs> and then get started the next year. Uh, but uh, that, that gives you an indication of how powerful this physician preference um, amazing. can really. be mm -hmm. and how wrong it can be. Mm -hmm. And if we can, and we still haven't standardized in this country on 39 weeks, uh, and if we can't do it on something like that, that's as black and white as a number, like 39, uh, imagine how we're doing on other procedures where it's less clear cut and there's less information. Uh, there was an initiative um, started in 2012 called Choosing Wisely by the um, 80 specialty societies in the country, you know, go through them, cardiology, you know, oncology, so on and so forth. And they identified 525 unnecessary procedures. Wow. And then they did a massive education campaign, both to patients and doctors, and handed out awards, um, big splashy brochures, conferences, everything. And Health Affairs did a study last year and said, how's choosing wisely done after five years? And... Um, there was no change in physician practice patterns, bupkis. So despite all that effort underlying all this, the fact that we continue to pay for things that aren't necessary um, means that we get a lot of care that's paid for, but not necessary. 
So if, this leads me to the heart of your book. Okay. Which I think, and this is something I, this was the light bulb moment, I think, for me reading your book was okay. fee for services and what that means. Yeah. And an alternative to that, which is full risk consulting. And I think understanding, you know, where yeah. we are and yeah. where we're going, it, that is really the heart of what you're, you're talking about. Right. I, I fundamentally don't believe we'll change the way we deliver care until we change the way we pay for care. Uh, so fee-for-service payment is the modern-day version of cost-plus reimbursement, uh, and it still probably constitutes 85 to 90 percent of the payment in healthcare. Mm. Um, there are, though, new models coming uh, into being that are a form of full-risk contracting, and by that I mean... And what does that mean for yeah. people who yeah. haven't read the book yet, but will? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, what full risk contracting means is that the group that provides the care takes the full risk for the outcome. And so in uh, episodic care, so something that happens once, say a, a hip replacement or a knee replacement, or a stent, and you know, it's a, an episode of care that we can put our hands around. There would be a predetermined amount upfront as to what that would would cost, and uh, and it would be fair, and it would be historically determined, and or maybe negotiated, but that would be the payment, and therefore the providers would have an uh, an obligation and a responsibility to provide all of the care necessary to deliver a great outcome for that. And if they can do it for under that amount, they can make a lot of money. If they do it for over that amount, they'll bear the cost of that. You know, just to give you one example, um, so we have um, rehab stays for people that have knee and hip replacements um, in, in, in Medicare, but, you know, everywhere, but predominantly the people that get knee and hip replacements are over 65. The payment, the fever service payment maxes out at 21 days. Best practice will tell you that people get better faster if they rehab every single day and you get them out of the hospital in seven, eight, nine, ten 10 days. That's best practice. If you want to look at the average time people spend in rehab in this country, it's 21 days. 21 days, because yeah. that's what they're right. going to get paid for. Right. So mm -hmm. when we shift from, okay, you providers have the incentive to um, get the person back up on their feet as quickly as possible, they will contract with the best rehab providers who can do it in seven or eight days, who have rehab seven days a week, um, who push people to, to get active and mobile again. And we'll see a dramatic improvement in, uh, or dra dramatic improvement in outcomes. People will get better faster and they'll be more productive sooner. Uh, and the cost will come way down too. So that is a form of, I believe, getting um, the interests of the patient and the providers on the same side, whereas today they're often in opposition uh, with one another. And then the second type of full risk contract is uh, what the industry calls capitation, but it's basically just per member per month um, mm. payment. And so uh, you, me, Sam um, would pay a certain amount per member per month and there would be a, a group rating on our, our insurance policy. 
and the the company, the insurance company, or the insurance company in combination with its hospital and doctor partners, and and and, would take responsibility for caring for that entire group, um, for that per member per month fee without deductibles, because that's the thing that's really changed in healthcare. Right? Well, and there insurance. there, there mm-hmm. could be there could mm-hmm. be some deductibles because I think we also want to figure out a ways to make all of us personally accountable. Accountable as well, right? Um, but the idea would be uh, it would be better to prevent a surgery than to make money off a surgery. So healthcare is essentially right. a defensive industry. Uh, it's treated like an offensive one. Bear Bryant, the famous Alabama football coach, said, you know, offense sells tickets, defense wins championships. Um, in healthcare, offense is doing treatments and people make lots of money doing treatments. But it's essentially a weak link enterprise, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So if we don't have good front-end primary care, behavioral health, chronic disease management, right. health promotion, people are getting sicker. In fact, as a country, we're sicker than we've ever been. And um, life expectancy is declining for the first time in the Amazing. Yeah. yeah, with with all that we're spending. Right, mm-hmm. with, yeah, and it's because we're treating the symptoms, we're not treating the root causes. So we need to have a strong defense as well as a strong offense. And over time, that means shifting resources out of this acute and specialty care into, as I just said, primary care, health promotion, chronic disease management, behavioral health. Uh, Here in Chicago, where we are, there are six institutions that do heart transplants. Only um, none of them do more than 25 in a year. Many are in single digits. I can't think of a more expensive, less effective way to do heart transplants than to spread it out that way. We ought to probably have one center that competes with a few other centers in the country to to do lots of them better, faster, cheaper, the way we do in other industries. Why do we have six places doing heart transplants in Chicago? It's, it's a good question. But Revolution, <laughs> baby. <laughs> now, how, do, how does this, you also talk about Medicare Advantage. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe um, some explanation of that is a possible format for right uh, for healthcare. What, and mm-hmm. we just talked about um, full risk contracting. Exactly. Is it a form of full risk? It contracting? is a form of full risk contracting. So, uh, and Medicare Advantage is not a perfect program. It has a lot of game playing on the front, where uh, the insurers that sign up people in Medicare Advantage. Uh, go through this mechanism where they make people as sick as possible on paper so they can get the highest payment. But once they got that payment, that's that's it. Um, uh, and so uh, Medicare Advantage is, at, when you kind of get through it, um, is a form of full risk contracting and it mm-hmm. changes the incentives. And that's part of the reason we're starting to see the emergence of lots of very interesting care management companies that are in the um, Medicare Advantage business or even more <laughs> surprising in a way, the uh, the dual eligible business. And so that's dual eligibles are people that qualify for both Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so basically old, sick, poor people, not a group that's historically gotten a lot of attention, but when you combine that payment from Medicare with the payment from Medicaid, it's pretty robust. So a number of companies have emerged to serve that marketplace. Uh, one in, in Maryland called Absolute Care uh, got assigned the sickest person in Maryland or the most expensive patient in Maryland 
you know, double digit visits to the ER, all kinds of uh, drugs, bad interactions, mental health issues, and so on. So they, this company did what you always do with, with a patient like that is they had a huddle where everybody who touched the patient got together and it turned out the most important person in this huddle was the van driver who said, you know, when I drop this guy off at church, he's in a good mood. And when I pick him up, he's even in a better mood. And someone else in the huddle said, well, maybe we should make him a greeter in our facility. At least that way he'd take his medications. <laughs> And, you know, it turned out problem solved. He was... Um, and close to care if he needed yeah, it. Yeah, close to care. He was uh, He, was, he was at home in the hospital. <laughs> well, he, he was lonely uh, and, mm-hmm. and probably depressed and having all that interaction with people. So his ER visits, dramat- you, know, you know, cut in half almost immediately. And then within six months, it disappeared. So just by having a social network and taking medications regularly... Uh, this company, Absolute Care, took the you know the single most expensive patient in Maryland and made them kind of a regular chronic disease patient. It's a great story. Yeah. Now, um, since we're talking about health economics here too, um, one issue is tax, and a lot of these institutions, uh, hospitals specifically, are tax exempt. Yet this is the f- yet or maybe because of that, it's the fastest largest growing segment of our economy. How do you look at, and I think in terms of price increases matched only by education, which is also tax exempt, what lessons do you draw from this? (laughs) Well, one, I don't think it's a coincidence. No. (laughs) Uh, There's a, there's a real challenge with nonprofit governance models. Um, First off, um, and I'm on a few boards and I know you are too, uh, owners or, or board members and senior management have a shared common interest in the success of the company, usually through stock. As a result, boards are often uh, very involved in strategy, even own the strategic process. They do it in concert with management. Um, in healthcare, uh, where there are volunteer boards, and higher ed for that that point. They're they're largely philanthropic. Uh, they have diffuse responsibility. They tend to be very large. Um, management disproportionately kind of calls the shots on on strategy and and decisions. It's very hard for a member of the board to challenge a member of management. Um, there is not the shared economic interest. In fact, there's often um, penalty that goes with challenging management. And management, who are very well paid, just read some of these 990s, um, operate on short-term contracts. So they actually have an incentive to um, keep the status quo intact. They don't have the longer-term incentive to um, reconfigure their companies for a world that pays them less and expects more outcomes. It's better to kind of fight in the trenches and keep those fee-for-service payments coming. Um, and so even with that, though, there are several um, nonprofit organizations with great leadership, and, and I call them incumbent revolutionaries that uh, that really are starting to reorganize around customers and, and deliver on this promise of right care, right time, right place, and right price. But the model overall is um, is pretty tough. And then from the institution's perspective, 
um, you know, a couple of years ago, Politico did a hatchet job on the Cleveland Clinic and basically said under Obamacare, the clinic was doing really well, but the neighborhood around the Cleveland Clinic was failing, mm. you know, so it wasn't enough to, um, you know, provide great medical care, unmatched medical care in many cases, conduct path-breaking research, train the next generation of, of doctors. They also had to be focused on... Improving the neighborhood. Yeah, well, yeah. workforce development, neighborhood empowerment, yeah. all of this How kind many of, things yeah. can you do well? And <laughs> I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I actually think they should pay their taxes and let other people worry about the, the neighborhood development. Um, I it, like that idea. Yeah. Um, I mean, they can still be nonprofit. They can still be mission-oriented. They can, but um, so I, I think this this mission aspect, um, or not mission, but the nonprofit aspect, uh, limits uh, some constructive behaviors. There isn't the the dynamic tension between board and management that there should be. And uh, when margins get above 5%, people come out of the woodwork asking for things. So as a result... Organizations keep the margins lower. Um, they say they do it for mission reasons, but it's often just either inefficiency or paying people more than they should. So. Right. It's and it, it's different than the automotive industry because nobody thinks you have a right to have a car. You can buy a car, but you don't have a right to have one. Whereas healthcare, increasingly, two people are talking about it as a right. And another wrinkle, another really special characteristic that you bring up is that technology, unlike, say, com computer hardware, <laughs> seems yeah. to, new technology, and I guess medical uh, information is doubling every 73 days or something, yeah. but technology seems to increase the price yeah. rather How than decrease that? the price. So that's atypical, too, of every other business and every yeah. other segment. Yeah. I, um, yeah. Uh, how I does that happen? I used to carry around one of those early compact portables and portable. Yes, I had one too. Because <laughs> they weighed 30 pounds and had no computing power. They had that little screen and I was so proud of that. And, you know, today you can buy a Microsoft uh, Surface Pro for 900 bucks with massive memory, right. incredibly fast, totally connected. Uh, and that's happened through incremental improvement that's actually in aggregate been astronomical. Uh, because of the nature of how we pay for things in healthcare, again, fee for service, uh, there's never an attempt to, or a, a, there's never a necessity to make it cheaper in order to get market share. I, I ran into an Israeli company probably 20 years ago that had figured out how to make images crisper in MRIs uh, using software. And in an MRI, the images a function of the hardware, you know, how you get the picture and then the software interpreting the image. So they could take an eight slice MRI and make it look like a 16 slice with software and it was really cheap to do. And there was no interest in the United States in that kind of improvement, uh, which you would think everybody would want uh, because everybody wanted the latest, greatest machine and Siemens and GE certainly didn't want, you know, to be selling software fixes when they could sell a brand new 16 slice machine. So it's, again, I think, uh, you know, if, if uh, healthcare were like Watergate and, and Deep Throat were, uh, you know, explaining Healthgate to, re to reporters, they'd still say the same thing, follow the money, because uh, that's what's driving the behavior. So what about, though, big data? Is that kind of an exception? Because data is so cheap to, <laughs> to generate and store right now. Privacy issues, how do you see... 
why isn't big data being utilized more well, in healthcare? Yeah. What's what is yeah, the promise there? Yeah, you know, liberated data saves lives. I, I believe data wants to be free. It wants to flow to where it will be of the most use. Uh, for a whole host of complicated reasons, we actually imprison patient data uh, within these siloed systems. Um, and it, so Epic, the large, it's it, all the electronic health companies do this, but Epic, the largest, is probably the most aggressive in this. They treat how they organize patient data as proprietary, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, we ought to all get, act, you know, there are all these smart companies out there with great intellectual capability, technology, and so on, that should be able to get the get access AI to and, yeah, yes. source data, mm -hmm. and then you know so apply you it. And so that's not happening, or not happening to anywhere near the extent it should. And we've got uh, you know a brouhaha going on right now in D.C. because uh, the government. Um, which in this case is actually here to help, has come up with very well-crafted regulations uh, to address things like data blocking, uh, mm -hmm. the inability of, of third parties to get access to data, to do apps and so on, um, patients to get access to their data, interoperability, which is the sharing of data. And I know it's, it's, uh, it's well-crafted legislation because Epic and... Many of the health systems and doctors groups are up in arms and, and doing everything they can to, to keep stop it. it. To stop it. Um, okay. So that battle's playing out right now. Classic industrial complex battle where the industry and their allies and Congress are kind of lining up to kill uh, progressive reform. And I'm cautiously optimistic because uh, one thing you can say about this president is he really doesn't care what people think of him in many respects. Right. So the direction that has been uh, given to the staff at Health and Human Services, if, if you can make it better, make it better. So we have great uh, data um, regulations on uh, in place, and hopefully they become part of the fabric of healthcare in our country and they'll, they'll make a difference. And I'll just say one last thing. It's really personal to Seema Verma, who's the administrator for Medicare. Her husband collapsed in the Indianapolis airport and because there wasn't data sharing, they couldn't get the information he needed for his care to him when he needed it. Now he lived uh, and, his and his recovery was also compromised by the fact that data didn't flow freely. So uh, we've trademarked the phrase "liberated data saves lives," and uh, we'll I have, love that. Yeah, because... well, well, yeah, data libre, baby. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's right. a big thing, and it, mm -hmm. it it can be a game changer. Well, we all experience when you go to the doctor and you filled out the form seven hundred times, or you you know taking my mother to the emergency room, and we've told the story to six people, and. She she tells a little little differently every time, <laughs> and so it's you, and you think to yourself in this day and age, yeah. why are we doing things that yeah. way? Right. So my last question to you is, um, uh, if um, the administration reached out to you and, and said, Dave, we want you to be the new health czar, what would be the first three things you would do? And, uh, and you have a, a Congress that you don't have to worry about, <laughs> uh, <laughs> parenthetically. I, I, would, I would get the government out of price setting, uh, so I would uh, shift payment responsibility uh, or full risk, financial risk for care coverage to third parties, like Medicare Advantage does. I see. Okay. Um, so I would go to full risk contracting. 
um, I would liberate the data like the administration I, I thought you'd is, say that. is currently trying to do. Right. And I would go after the, um, the lax regulatory environment and do everything I could do to create a pro-market as opposed to a pro-business uh, regulatory environment so great companies could emerge and win the way great companies should win um, by better ideas, better customer service, better value. Uh, so I would let America be America. Amer I was going to just say, I bet you're going <laughs> to say that phrase. <laughs> Well, this has been a wonderful conversation about a, a, a topic that touches every single one of us one yeah. way or the other. And we all know something needs to change and be better. Yeah. So this, if you want to uh, have a hopeful message and see how things might evolve and America's entrepreneurial spirit could be brought to bear on this problem, um, definitely read David Johnson's book, The Customer Revo <laughs> Revolution in Healthcare. And it's out now, right? It, it is says 2020 now. on the copyright. So I wasn't quite sure. Oh, does it really? Yeah. Well, shame on us. <laughs> oh, no. That's okay. And um, how else can people follow you, Dave? On well, Twitter or what's your handle on yeah, Twitter or uh, your website? It, or? Our Twitter handle is Market V Medicine. Market V. Uh, yeah, yeah, like V. Yeah, because okay. the first book was Market versus Medicine. First, right. Uh, LinkedIn, we've got a big page, but the best way to do it is to go onto our website, which is foresighthealth.com. So the number four, S I G H T health.com, foresighthealth.com, or as my nephew does, you can't see it uh, because it's, this isn't uh, visual, but. He puts four fingers in his eyes and goes foresight like that. So um, <laughs> that's a good way to remember yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but this has this has been a blast. I knew it would be a blast. And you started you, off. Dave. You started off by saying, uh, you know, for many people, healthcare is a life or death issue. And I, I'd actually say it's a life or de death issue for all of us. So uh, for everybody, have, for everybody. So we all yeah. have a stake in getting this right. And if we can get it right. Uh, I'm already bullish on America for all kinds of reasons, uh, but I think if we can get healthcare right, we'll unleash all these resources and turbocharge the economy and uplift people's lives and, and go about making America or letting America be America. <laughs> there we go. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Dave, Thank very you. much for joining us. <laughs>